Welcome to the Beehive Capital Show. I'm Douglas Abusu. As always, I'm here with the Beehive Capital Management Team. On the Beehive Capital Show, we provide a medium for the startup ecosystem's most respected and trusted leaders to share their insight so entrepreneurs and investors can flourish, even during these trying times. Ila Borenstein joins us today. She is the program director in the market development team at BDC Capital. Prior to BDC, Ila was chief operating officer at a VC-backed biotech firm. Ila, welcome to the Beehive Capital podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm glad that we're able to hop on this call as well. Essentially, as the director of the market development program at BDC Capital, there are a lot of great initiatives that the team has been engaged with. And I would love to hear your thoughts on leadership and a bit of where your thoughts are on this concept in terms of improving the ecosystem going forward through this pandemic. No, thanks, Douglas. I appreciate the opportunity to share uh, what we're doing at BDC because I think uh, BDC is an organization that takes great leadership in times of crisis when there's an economic consequence. As you know, we are a crown corporation and we act uh, according to the BDC Act, which is a directive for the organization as to how to conduct its business. But we also receive different mandates from the federal government um, as it pertains to current issues. So I can talk about the program that I run in market development, but before I do that, perhaps I can just indicate that BDC currently, throughout this COVID crisis, has been asked to run a number of different initiatives to help the small and medium-sized businesses, the entrepreneurs out there, through this very challenging, difficult time. So we're lending more, we're uh, investing more, we are stepping up where sometimes the traditional banks cannot step in because of certain risk credit limits. And we at BDC have some flexibility given to us by the federal government and additional capital to put at work during these difficult times. So I'm very proud to be part of that organization that is actively stepping up to help uh, our Canadian entrepreneurs. It's a difficult time for everyone. And BDC's management, uh, they demonstrate extraordinary leadership with their communication style and their empathy for the employees. So while we understand that entrepreneurs are going through a difficult time and we have to step up and do more than we would normally be doing, there is also a great deal of uh, understanding for people who are working remotely, some who are trying to get things done with, you know, young children at home and have, you know, personal and family constraints and stresses that are also coming at the same time because of COVID. So I'm very grateful to be part of BDC during this and grateful not only because it's a terrific organization, but because we're we're making a difference. So I just wanted to open with that. As far as market dev is concerned, it's a department that was created um, not even five years ago, perhaps just about five years ago, that addresses consistently support for the venture capital industry at the level of the capital providers. So where we focus our efforts is at the level of the investors. 
And we do that through a number of different tools. We have educational services as well as capital programs. The education part is really a way for the Canadian investor to accelerate their own maturation, to accelerate the experiences that the Canadian investors encounter. As I'm sure you can appreciate, Canadian investors don't get to do quite as much as some of the, you know, larger firms in the U.S., uh, you know, who see many more companies or who have more capital to deploy. So when you're investing and you see hundreds of companies, you may only do, you know, a handful of investments a year. And that's quite typical in the Canadian environment. So how do you learn? Well, what we've done is we've created a series of seminars called Fundamental Principles. And we do a little play on words there with fund capitalized and principles, principals, you know, like as in networking. And it's a play on words that my former boss, Neil Hill, created. And he's very proud of that. So um, Fundamental Principles is a series of seminars that are topical. We bring in speakers, both leaders within the Canadian venture capital industry, but also outside of the industry. We cover such topics as gender equality and issues when it becomes something that the industry is talking about and wants to learn more about. We bring in speakers to talk about you know, merger and acquisitions, things that you can look toward avoiding, as well as, you know, things that you want to embrace, how to manage your portfolio. But really, it is an environment where only fund managers are in the audience. So they can speak freely. They're amongst their peers. There's nobody there trying to get them to invest. And so it's a very secluded setting, and it allows the kind of interaction that we feel helps uh, advance the conversation and hopefully accelerate the learnings of the fund managers. And what we've done as a sort of offshoot from that is we've created what's called GP Academy. So a school for GPs, general partners in venture capital firms. Now we do this with the collaboration of the Kaufman Fellows. The Kaufman Fellows is a world leading program in venture education. And I'm actually a fellow. I participated in class 17, and it was one of the most important trajectory changes in my career. It actually brought me out of investing and into this part of the business, which is more focused on ecosystem development. And as a consequence, uh, the fellows leadership agreed to help BDC and Canadian GPs elevate their game. And so GP Academy is designed similarly to the Kaufman Fellows Program. Their program is a two-year, seven-module, two-international conference schedule. And our program, GP Academy, is a four-module, 18-month program. So a lighter version, if you will. But the concept of having a cohort of the same group of people, GPs, and our first cohort were specifically founding GPs, and leading GPs in current Canadian firms. And the idea was to have them travel this journey together and the learning journey, the um, journey into greater self-awareness as an investor. And what has 
become is we've created a cohort of 12 of Canada's leading investors who are now stronger in their interactions, more intimate in their interactions. They share things that they would not have shared with one another before, and they seek one another's advice on a relatively frequent basis. So all of that can only strengthen and ultimately lead to better performance. And so we're very proud of that. We are in the middle of our second cohort, again, with the Kaufman Fellows. But unfortunately, because we believe a lot of the in-person interaction is critical to advancing these relationships, we have had to stop that because of COVID. Instead, we are trying to keep them in contact through virtual meetings and virtual sessions, but people are kind of zoomed out right now. So we've taken a bit of a step back and yet they themselves are on a Zoom call uh, at their own you know, initiative. They've been on calls every month, nonetheless, to help one another through this crisis. And we do understand that they are in touch with one another. So having you know, now a total of 22 of Canada's firms engaged in GP Academy, that's a pretty significant impact in our Canadian venture capital market. We have anywhere between 50 and 70 firms in the Canadian market that are actively investing in venture. And so to have a good percentage of them engaged in GP Academy and with one another, we think is going to have a big impact on the maturation of our industry going forward. I couldn't agree more. And with that said, these are some of the leading firms across Canada working closely together to essentially facilitate their own development through peer-to-peer interactions. And I find that to be quite fitting with our theme here on leadership, as these are all leaders in their own respect, making key decisions in growing their businesses and the ecosystem. So with the interactions and observations gained, I'm curious to hear on a high level what you would define as leadership. What does leadership mean to you? So that's a question I think about a lot. You know, it's like uh, when you ask someone, what is art? Well, I know it when I see it. Um, I've had the good fortune of working with some amazing leaders in business and industry. And if I think about it, and try to articulate it. To me, leadership is about having people coalesce around a goal or an objective to achieve a desired outcome and doing that not through intimidation or coercion, but to really have them understand and bring their best game forward to work together in a cohesive and collaborative manner. And people can do that in different ways. I think leadership comes in very different forms. There is, in my opinion, not a single way to be an effective leader. Some people are more adept at bringing out the best of people in a group setting. Some do it on an individual basis. But some of the key features for me are leaders who express their ideas with great clarity, who are consistent in their communications, and who can provide support to their team, recognize both accomplishments and weaknesses, who present opportunities for individuals to be empowered, who are strong listeners, but decisive at the same time. So you can't 
for example, be so good at listening that you never actually make a decision. Leaders work with certain constraints. Those constraints may be perceived by the rest of the team. They may not be visible to the rest of the team, but I think a strong leader will identify what those constraints are so that the team understands why certain decisions have been made and can get behind those decisions. And eventually, I think a telltale sign of a good leader is having a team coalesce and get behind a decision, even in the absence of knowing why that decision was made, but trusting that that information will be provided at a future date. Because in a crisis, in an emergency, you may not always, as a leader, have the time to provide a complete and thorough rationale for some decisions. But if your team trusts you, they'll still get behind your decision. Leaders know when to step aside and let others demonstrate their leadership skills as well. You don't always have to be the one leader in the room. There are many times when individuals can provide their leadership skills and a hallmark of a mature leader, a mature successful leader is a certain degree of humility. When you have that humility, you understand you're not always the smartest in the room, that you can be wrong and that you need to admit it, and yet you can still direct everybody in the same vector. And I think that high-performing individuals, actually, this is a bit of a modified quote. I believe it was Harry Truman who said that you can accomplish great things when you don't care who gets the credit. Hmm. And that's a quote that I've used as a, a sort of spiritual guideline for my own working ethic. As long as the team is successful, we should all be happy. And individuals can be recognized by a strong leader. But the ultimate goal is you shouldn't care who gets the credit. And I see that sometimes. I don't see it always and often enough, but I do see that sometimes. That's beautiful. And I see so many points here that resonate. Um, There's actually a quote by Ray Dalio. He speaks a lot on humility and open-mindedness and searching for the truth rather than being right. And many of the points that he expresses, you've actually also articulated in your points there. And I think it's true, being able to identify the challenges and then rally a group around you to achieve the objective and having enough trust where they feel that, although I may not know all the answers now, I have enough trust in this person where I will go forward and the answers will present themselves. Now, Converting this into the organizational context, um, you've been a part of many high-performing organizations throughout your career. I believe one IPO'd, you were a senior vice president of another. I'm curious to hear essentially a individual that you've observed throughout your career where when you think back to that person, there were certain characteristics that you observed that really helped take that organization to the next level. When I think about leaders that I've known, the common thread that I see is honesty and transparency. So I don't like to be played. Most people don't like to be played or manipulated. We can sense when things are being spun at us. And I get my defenses up really quickly when I feel that way. 
And so anyone who comes at you with the truth, good, bad, and ugly, will get my support. And I think the vast majority of my colleagues that I've seen over the years feel similarly. Some work well with spin and others don't. And so maybe there are different parts of an organization where spin is a little bit more accepting, but in a managerial or executive suite, I don't feel it works. And so when I think about high-performing individuals or high-performing organizations, the individual understands what motivates you as the employee. They don't take a generic or, in some cases, I've seen narcissistic approach to having you motivated. I once worked with a leader who would try and inspire me by telling me all the things that we can achieve and accomplish, but they were only those things that were important to this person and not the things that were important to me. Hmm. Not everyone's motivated by bonus or salary. Sure, it helps, but that's not what motivates. I think you have to talk about values. And it sounds a little bit perhaps like motherhood and apple pie, but stated values and behavior consistent with those values, I believe, is the best formula to accelerate and enhance outcome and performance. If you are inconsistent in that, then there's never a full-throated endorsement of your style and your behaviors for me. So this is, I think, is very personal. Different people work with different leaders in different ways, but generically across the board, I think honesty, integrity, and being able to be a consistent communicator as to why and how you are looking to achieve your goals works understanding what motivates your individuals is is particularly important and it's an environment where if you create that kind of atmosphere then you create an atmosphere where others will behave similarly and ultimately that leads to people helping each other and so there's a synergy as opposed to a, a pure you know competitive or individualistic approach i see it seems to some it, it's congruency with intent and the behavior behind those intents and the values that you have. If the congruency does not align, it does not feel right. When someone is trying to motivate you for the wrong reasons, this can actually drive the organization to not be as efficient and optimal as possible. Douglas, you've just summarized it very eloquently. Thank you. Now, in terms of community, See, leadership is such an interesting concept because it's so multifaceted. It can be interpreted from the perspective of internal, organizational, community. And in regards to community, I would love to hear what are the activities that you believe great leaders engage in. And I find it to be interesting because when I think about this, I actually do think of the BDC and the market development program because on the ground level in the innovation ecosystem, I'm sure that there are many leadership teams that have no idea how much work a team such as the market development team is actually putting to educate, optimize, and bring together the GP ecosystem and the leaders that fund capital into the ecosystem, right? For example, there's also the Venture Capital Catalyst Initiative. We, we digressed right away from half of what the uh, market development team does. So thank you for bringing us back to it. Uh, so yes, the Venture Capital Action Plan, VCAP, and the Venture Capital Catalyst Initiative 
Vicky are both under are the purview of the market development team, and they support the capital provider layers in the VC ecosystem by injecting capital into the hands of fund managers, so sophisticated fund managers for the most part, who then in turn have to leverage that money with private capital and attract private capital. So it's an incentivized program where the government very cleverly decided for us to help the venture capital industry with an injection of capital, we should create a program where the private sector actually will drive the decisions. And that's probably a key component to a government program that will actually be sustainable and have an enduring impact. Because we've seen over the years, government put money into all kinds of things. But in this case, government said, we're going to put in money for every dollar we put in. The private sector has to, under different circumstances, match it with $1 from private investors or up to $2.5 in the case of Vicky's for the fund of funds. And so the government's money has leveraged substantially capital coming into the venture capital asset class. And this was really important with VCAP that was initiated subsequent to the economic slowdown. And, you know, you look around and the retraction of capital from the VC asset class was almost complete. It's one of the first most vulnerable asset classes because of the high risk profile that it entails. And so coming out of the economic crisis in 2011, the government said, okay, how do we fix this? And this is the program, VCAP is the program that, that came up. And with $350 million put into the hands of high-performing fund managers and funds of funds, the program was able to leverage $1.5 billion into the VC asset class. And it is a private market-driven set of decisions. Once we put the money in, government selected who gets the money based on you know defined criteria. And there was a private industry panel that was put together that interviewed everybody and made sure that the actions would be consistent with the goals and objectives of the program. And we managed those investments as the LP on behalf of the government. So BDC is not making investment decisions here, but we are managing the capital to ensure compliance with the program. And that's our rule. Because of its early positive encouraging indicators, when the investment cycle was complete, there was recognition there would be a need for a, a subsequent program. And so Vicky was created with some of the lessons learned. We elevated the leverage of public to private capital and put in a little uh, more Canadian content and Canadian focus requirements. Uh, we recognize that to attract capital in a undesirable, I quote unquote, undesirable asset class at the time, we had to provide incentive. And so government put their money at risk first in fee cap and got their money out last, which is unusual. And But it did give a much more favorable profile to the private sector and, and did provide an incentive, including a preferred return. Uh, and in Vicky, we sort of, tweaked a few of those parameters, government and uh, the private money go in together, parry, passu, but the private money is going to come out first with a preferred return, and then the government money will come out. So again, a little bit of a modified and reduced incentive because the asset class was gaining momentum, but nonetheless incentivized program. 
And again, we're seeing very encouraging signs. We believe strongly that these two programs helped revitalize the venture capital industry, but that alone is not enough to be sustainable. We clearly need to have a high-performing asset class for the private sector to continue to want to invest. And the initial signs are very encouraging, as I said. And overall, the asset class globally is doing much better, you know, today, nearly 10 years later than how it was positioned in 2011. So thank you for reminding me (laughs) to speak about this truly important uh, initiative that the Canadian government supports. And the closing segment or topic that I would love to hear from you is I personally have this belief that in every temporary defeat, there's a seed of equivalent or greater benefit. And it's this perspective where any situation that you go through, there are benefits or gains or lessons learned that can be taken from it that can actually help you go further. And so given the COVID impact and the economic landscape, I'm quite curious to hear what are a few essentially trends or actions that you believe the pandemic has triggered for the better going forward? So Douglas, I'm going to take a very uh, personal and heavily biased view on that question. As you probably know, my background is in pharmaceuticals and drug development and focused on as my mom likes to say, uh, you know, my daughter was into drugs for many years and now she's into banking. But nonetheless, what COVID has done is put a magnifying glass on the efforts we have in Canada on healthcare innovation. And we have a rather anemic healthcare infrastructure for innovation outside of the universities. We have world-class research. We have world-class universities where billions of dollars of our government money goes into supporting our research scientists. But once there is research, the development dollars are not there. There's only a handful of venture capital investors who are available and focused on early stage development of both therapeutics and med tech. And we, as a country, don't offer a lot of access to capital for a rather capital-intensive development program. When one of our researchers develops something, it's not a Canadian solution. It has to be a global solution, and it often is. And it's undoubtedly, in my mind, equally capable of addressing a unmet and serious medical need going forward. But we don't have the capital in Canada to really drive that development in a highly competitive and unconstrained manner. And so often our really strong technology does get the attention of outside investors, which is great if they syndicate with the Canadians, because we can create value certainly in Canada using and leveraging the Canadian capital and attracting outside capital. But it's been very challenging for our entrepreneurs. There is always a need to raise capital and seek out the next dollars and late stage development particularly. So I think that COVID has shown us the importance of healthcare. There's nothing to say that capital going into the development of new IT isn't good. I think it is good. But it's very difficult to compare 
the IT capital demands in an innovation in ecosystem and the capital demands and timeframe and needs in a healthcare trajectory of that ecosystem. And so you need to carve it out. You can't have an investor sitting there and saying, do I put $2 in to invest in that app that'll you know, likely be acquired by Google for a gazillion dollars? Or do I put those $2 in where I need to find another $8 and then I have to wait a little bit longer, if not substantially longer for us to recognize the value and have an acquisition by pharma company? Those are tough decisions for an investor to make in a head-to-head battle. So I think we need to recognize that Canadian research capabilities are world-class, but our ability to develop products and services for a global industry requires more attention. And I'm hoping that the COVID crisis has highlighted the needs, and particularly as we see the adoption of remote telehealth, because that is one thing that was taking a long time to sort of get traction in mainstream treatment and facilities. Now, I think most people are far more comfortable with having an interaction remotely, whether it's with their bank. We know that hurdle has been passed a few years ago, but now it's time to do it with your doctor, with your healthcare provider. And I think those technologies are going to flourish in the post-COVID era. And I hope that we can, in Canada, create that value, create those technologies, and continue to mature our healthcare industry, which I'll remind you is still young. We have only maybe 30 years of developing products for the market. Canada was seen only as a real sales and marketing geography territory for farm industry, but it was in the 90s that we started actually doing research and development for commercialization purposes. And I think we've done an extraordinary job. We have had leaders in in global markets coming out of Canada, but it's still young and it requires more uh, attention and support from everyone to continue to build out that level of consistent and sustainable commercialization of our technology in the healthcare sector. Excellent. Well, Ila, that actually covers the majority of questions that I would have liked to cover. Thank you so much for the time. I truly appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure. And I really like what you're doing with your podcast. I think you're hopefully reaching people who share your interests and providing some additional input and sometimes perhaps provocative thinking that they'll uh, pursue further. So I applaud you for doing that. And I appreciate again, I'm very grateful for having had this opportunity. Thank you. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the Beehive Capital Podcast. We hope this sparked new ideas, aha moments, or raise your spirits during these trying times. All the best, Douglas Obusu and the Beehive Capital Team.